Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. I'm Dr. Neha Bhattuk, WebMD's Chief Physician Editor for Health and Lifestyle Medicine. I'm sure we have all found ourselves at one time or another in those challenging conversations with family members and loved ones as we've tried to stress the importance of their medical care, only to be met with skepticism fueled by unfounded sources or infographics they've seen on social media. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, many of us have had to become an expert on explaining evidence-based truths about matters like viral loads, how masks prevent transmission, and of course, whether or not the COVID-19 vaccine is helpful or harmful to our health. In an age of unprecedented access to information, sifting through verifiable scientific facts and baseless claims can be incredibly challenging, but it's vital for safeguarding public health and ensuring the well-being of our families and our communities. Today, we're digging into what happens when vaccine hesitancy or medical misinformation drastically shifts into anti-science. How did we get here and what can we do to protect our families and invest in community health? Here to talk to us about vaccine skepticism, medical misinformation, and anti-science aggression is Dr. Peter Hotez. Dr. Hotez is an American scientist, pediatrician, and advocate in the fields of global health, vaccinology, and neglected tropical disease control. He's also the author of The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning. Welcome to the WebMD Health Discovered podcast. Oh, thrilled to be here, Dr. Pathak. Thanks so much. Before we jump in, we always start our podcast episodes by thinking about our own health discoveries. So love to see if you could start with your aha moment when it came to writing this book. This book reflects an evolution. So I'm a vaccine scientist by design. I did my MD and PhD in New York 40 years ago, and I was at Cornell and Rockefeller, where the motto of the university is science for the benefit of humanity. And I thought of becoming a vaccine scientist and making vaccines was the highest expression of science for humanitarian purposes. And I still believe that. The part I did not count on was having to defend vaccines and going up against a rising anti-vaccine movement. And the way I got involved with that is I have four adult kids now, including Rachel, who has autism and intellectual disabilities. And that was the original assertion from anti-vaccine groups 20 plus years ago, were false claims that vaccines cause autism. And I wrote a book called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism. Wound up making me public enemy number one or two with anti-vaccine groups, but it also gave me a front row seat to what this anti-vaccine movement is all about. Can you tell us a little about what inspired your new book? So the new book called The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science looks at how the anti-vaccine ecosystem now has a political dimension, first and foremost. And it's not an academic discussion, but the fact that it caused 200,000 Americans to needlessly lose their lives because they refused a COVID vaccine during the Delta and BA1 Omicron waves and vaccines were more than 90% protective. And that's why we have to talk about it, even though as physicians or physician scientists, we don't like talking about politics and Republicans and Democrats and liberals or conservatives or red states and blue states. So I wrote the book because it's become such a lethal societal force. It's very unpleasant, hard to talk about, but I just haven't found a way to talk about it other than to talk about it. So I talked about it, or I wrote about it, and that brings us to the book. 
which looks at even a greater horror, how the anti-vaccine movement kind of graduated from phony claims around autism to become a political movement that was adopted by far-right extremists. That's so interesting. You really did start this journey of communication with the public with your own and your family's story and how that was sort of used for purposes to attack you in some way. So I'm just wondering, what do you think are lessons learned for those of us who are thinking about using stories to help connect with our patients? Well, it, it has been a powerful story in the sense that I began the story was because there was a gap, there was a vacuum. There was expanding assertions on the internet and social media and, and even mainstream news and cable news channels, newspapers, false claims that vaccines cause autism. And I thought, look, here I am a vaccine scientist. I have a daughter with autism and intellectual disabilities. No one's speaking out about this. If I don't do it, who does it? And so it was that vacuum that prompted me to do it and did find it meaningful and I still do. But you know, it invites a lot of aggression because in the beginning you had anti-vaccine groups that were monetizing the internet, selling phony autism cures and nutritional supplements and go to amazon.com and type in books on vaccination. It's all anti-vaccine and conspiracy books. And so it became, it was an industry. And so I was hurting the bottom line and they were pretty aggressive. And then my colleague, Imran Ahmed, who heads the Center for Countering Digital Hate, and as I often say, it's incredible that we have to have an organization called the Center for Countering Digital Hate, identifies around 12 individuals or groups that he terms the disinformation dozen that are responsible for two-thirds or 65% of the disinformation content for many years is a lonely battle. The point is, it's not enough just to say to parents, it ain't the vaccines go look somewhere else, but they actually have a real legitimate story to tell on the role of autism genes and neuronal connection. That was very powerful. But this next phase of the movement is my greatest challenge of all, because now people's political leanings and identity are tied to this. It was really hard to pull people out of that and get them to consider vaccinating. It's not that we care, right? We don't care, Dr. Pathak, about people's political leanings, even their extreme views. That's your right as an American citizen. But the book really asks, how do we uncouple that from the anti-science and the anti-vaccine views? Because that's going to kill you and such tragic losses in life. And I keep coming back to it's not that we relish the fact that we can talk about politics. We don't. We don't like to do this. And the scientific societies and the medical societies don't like to do it. But I just haven't found a way to talk about it other than to, to actually say it like it is and, and save lives in the hopes that by reporting and describing this, whether you call it ecosystem or movement, that people who understand the political dimension can start to unravel it and at least counter it. People are always pointing to a scientist or a medical expert or scientific research to justify their point of view. So I don't even know that they recognize that they are fitting the bill for being part of the anti-science movement. So how do you sort of think about that? Well, that's right. I mean, if you, you know, listen to Fox News and they bring on these talking heads that have bona fide medical credentials, and some of them are at serious academic health centers like UCSF or Stanford or Johns Hopkins, even though they don't have specific knowledge about vaccines or infectious diseases, it still sounds pretty credible. 
right? And that's what makes it so diabolical in some ways is they're very clever in a nefarious way, how they use rhetoric and how they bring on experts for this. And then, you know, the other piece to this is, again, communications and rhetoric becomes very important because it's something like, well, who's this Hotez guy being so dogmatic? You know, we're just asking questions. Isn't that how science is done? And so it weaponizes that health and science communication. And again, in a very clever way, and, and it changes the narrative. People start blaming the scientists for not communicating properly. And that's what we're seeing now in this next phase as we slowly get on the other side of COVID. Not that we're there yet, but you know, you're seeing this revisionist history, maybe in part because I wrote the book and pointed out the loss of life. They're saying, no, no, it was the vaccines that killed, just total nonsense. Or they're saying, you know, it was the scientist who created the COVID virus in the first place. Equally nonsense. It's all revisionist history. Interesting. Where is it part of their identity? What is the point of confusion? What is it that we can do as health professionals or scientists to really tease apart the individual motivation? So who is the right messenger, I guess, is the point I'm trying to make to help people understand. I wrote a couple of articles, as did many others, you know, debunking the major reasons why people said they weren't going to get a COVID vaccine. Everything from the seemingly plausible, they said it was rushed. How could it be legit? Which you can debunk because a lot of that was due to press releases from the companies, which tended to spectacularize their results and ignored the fact that it was 20 years of R&D that went into identifying the spike proteins and target for the virus in the mRNA. That was, we were making coronavirus vaccines 12 years ago, and the mRNA discovery that was awarded the Nobel Prize was 15, 20 years of work. And so you could debunk that, and you could debunk that mRNA vaccines are, you know, the claim was it's genetically modifying people. And you could go down the list and basically debunk them one by one by one. But at the end of that exercise, people still weren't getting vaccinated because although they said that was the reason, the fact was they were listening to the contrarians or they were listening to their elected officials who had a political agenda and they tied their identity to that. And that became the hardest of all to separate, but it was very frustrating. I always sort of say this is that my job, I feel, as a primary care doc in the clinic is to go upstream of the conflict. So to try to get to a point where we can both agree that we both want to see you protected and healthy. So this is the best tool that I have. How can we go through the logic behind why this is going to be helpful and why avoiding it is going to be harmful to your health? And I think that identity plays a huge piece in it. So for me, it was when those barriers did come out, it was really, really trying to ensure that I had the right sort of incentive for that particular patient. And so having that discussion, understanding their motivations, that's when I saw a lot of the barriers come down. But you're right in terms of when it became an identity issue, it was very difficult to move past that. And unprecedented for its scope and scale. What do you think is working in terms of messaging? Where is it working? Is there a space globally that you can point to that you can say, because we have a lot of community health workers here, or there's been a lot of trust building work that's been done in certain communities, that that's where these messages are working or turning the tide? I think that did help with some groups. I think with BIPOC communities, people of color, I did a lot of podcasts and Zoom calls with some of the black churches across the southern states and talked to a number of members of the clergy and 
that kind of outreach and especially involvement with the pastors did make a difference. So in the beginning of the pandemic, when you looked at the two most resistant groups to vaccines, those who identified themselves by party affiliation as Republicans from conservative states, the highest rate of vaccine hesitancy, and then the African-American population. The vaccine hesitancy of the African-American population actually went down quite a bit. And I would ask a number of the pastors at his churches, why do you think that's happening? And they would say, well, you know, part of it's docs like you speaking out, but then they offer. It was the involvement of the clergy. And I, I think that's a story that still needs to be better told. But it does show you that there is hope that you can persuade people to accept science, accept vaccines in some circumstances. But the other groups just stayed up there. And, and now you're seeing doubling down and trying to revise history, blame the scientists, blame the vaccines. And so on that basis, I don't see this kind of self-correction or autocorrection. You know, in the past, when parents were vaccinating their kids in the community, you'd see an epidemic, an outbreak of pertussis or measles. And parents would hear about kids getting hospitalized in the community from pertussis or measles, and they would run out and vaccinate their kids. There was that self-correction mechanism. I'm not seeing that. In fact, I'm seeing resistance now to other vaccines and maybe spill over to other childhood immunizations. So I think there's been whatever metaphor you want to use is kind of permanent tear in the matrix. And I think also, you know, we're too often, again, blaming the scientists or, you know, you're hearing from some of the professional risk communicators. Well, we, we didn't communicate effectively in this kind of stuff. And, and yes, there's maybe some truth to that. So as you're doing this work and speaking with political leaders and community leaders, what are you seeing as the potential shift or impact on us over the next five years, 10 years? It, it's almost funny to ask this question right now, but are you seeing some policymakers coming together to address this from a political angle as well? So far, no. I mean, I don't see this getting, certainly I don't see this getting better up until the 2024 election. I think what happens after that is anybody's guess. But I do see some ominous trends. I see the U.S. exporting its anti-vaccine movement. But you're seeing this low and middle income countries now even affecting acceptance of the new malaria vaccines, for instance. So I see, you know, the U.S. is good at exporting its movies and its music, exporting this stuff now. So the globalization of the anti-vaccine movement, I see, is the, the next big phase. I think the other really worrisome one is this portrayal of scientists as public enemies or enemies of the state. And again, trying to blame the vaccines or say the scientists made the virus, even though all the scientific evidence points to the natural origins of COVID, but it's happening at the expense of the scientists. So this under erosion or undermining of science, I think, is another really worrisome step. And there is historical precedent, right? This is what authoritarian regimes do, and I have a whole chapter devoted to authoritarian regimes. So we're going through a very dark phase right now. History says things do autocorrect, but exactly what's going to bring that about is not so clear. Well. I really want to thank you for your time because I know that you are very busy along with fighting misinformation and the anti-science movement. You are also continuing to do your work in virology and hopefully providing the world with many more vaccines to come. Before I let you go, if you wouldn't mind, are there any key takeaways for our audience that you think that 
um, would be very helpful to them as they potentially attempt to communicate in their spheres of influence? What would you like them to know? Well, I think the most important is to look upon those who espouse anti-vaccine views with some level of sympathy. They're victims of predation, of a predatory movement that did this for purposes of gaining political control. So when you go into conservative or rural areas of the United States and people are dug in and they express some views that sound so extreme, remember they, they're victims of this. And I think that that helps. And now it's not only just the deaths, but remember long COVID can occur in anyone who gets COVID, even asymptomatic COVID, but the risk goes up with severe COVID. So in addition to the 200,000 lives lost, we're probably looking at millions of long COVID sufferers as a consequence of this too. So this will be around for, for a long time. And I think we have to view it through that lens. Well, one thing I re remember that sometimes when identity was at stake and the times the walls did come down and the person was vaccinated, what was very clear was they were adamant that no one else should know that they were vaccinated, that this was a private decision and they did not want to share this with their community. So I, I just think that that came up for me as well to your earlier question. Well, there's two things about that. Well, one is very sad, right? They would make great ambassadors for us. But the other is one of the anti-vaccine viewpoints is that false claims that people shed spike protein and are contaminating other people with spike protein. So ostracizing. This is the oldest trick in the book, oldest propaganda trick in the book. And uh, unfortunately, it was all too effective. Thank you so much for being with us today. We've talked with Dr. Peter Hotez about what makes it so hard to combat the anti-science movement and some successes when it comes to speaking with people about protecting their health. To find out more information about Dr. Peter Hotez, visit peterhotez.org. Thank you for listening. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite listening platform. If you'd like to send me an email about topics you're interested in or questions for future guests, please send me a note at webmdpodcast at webmd.net. This is Dr. Neha Bhattuk for the WebMD Health Discovered Podcast. Mm -hmm.